Cause I love to feel love but I can't stand the rejection I hide behind my job as a form of protection I thought I was close but under further inspection It seems I've been running in the wrong direction There's fish in the sea for me to make a selection I'd jump in if it wasn't for my ear infection Cause all I wanna do is try to make a connection I've been running in the wrong direction. Oh. Hello and welcome to episode 1700 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. 1700. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we get to a big round number like that, I just reflect for a moment and think, this thing is still going. <laughs> 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 1700. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah. I remember sort of very early in you, in you and Sam doing the pod, like you both sounded very sleepy for a lot of those <laughs> early episodes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like you had taken a Benadryl right before you recorded or something <laughs> like that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Sam was like recording in his car. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, um, you know, the big round numbers make you reflect on that. And uh, it's it's kind of wild that here we are. <laughs> yeah. Benadryl is named after me, actually. Little known fact, <laughs> I, I produce that substance naturally. It just It's in my bloodstream at all times. So I've learned to kind of combat it when I have to do a podcast. So <sighs> the natural sleepiness is still there, even if the sleeplessness is also still there. In fact, those things may be related now that I think about it. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> so we are recording on Thursday afternoon, and I'm still trying to process this Pirates-Cubs play that has taken... <laughs> In Twitter by Storm. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has seen it by now. I will link to it if by chance you have missed it somehow. But this was presented by MLB's Twitter account. The little caption for the video is El Mago Magic. Have you ever seen anything like this? And no to the question. I don't think I have seen anything quite like this. Although I would say it's a generous reading to call it <laughs> El Mago Magic. The question is, is this a Javier Baez highlight or is this a Pirates lowlight? And I guess it could be both, but I lean toward the latter. Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to ruin anyone's good time, man. Like, I'm not here to harsh anyone's vibe. This is funny and delightful regardless of how you sort of apportion the credit or blame i suppose for what Mm -hmm. happened but i think that um (laughs) the popular interpretation of the text does not seem supported to me and look that is not to say that having been presented with just a brain freeze and fart, a simultaneous freeze and <laughs> fart of galactic proportions mm-hmm. that Javi Baez managing to sort of deke and move. And, and let us not, I think we are underselling the perhaps real hero of this, which is the fantastic base running by Wilson Contreras. Like, yeah. let us not, let us not forget <laughs> that the only reason that the back half of it is relevant is because. Contreras managed to to come home, right, and and do it without getting tagged. And his coming down the third base line, I think, inspired the throw that then put Baez in a position to advance back up the first base line to reach the back. Because, like, lest we forget, 
Javi has to reach first base in order for that run to count. Like if he is tagged out subsequent to that, regardless mm-hmm. of the sequencing of the scoring, like he then the run doesn't score and and it's all for naught. So there are several components to this. I don't mean to say that like his ability to sort of deke and confuse didn't play a role here, but this starts with just a I'm gonna do a swear, a colossal fuck up on Paul Craig's part. Just like yeah. the kind of thing that I hope he immediately has something sort of fantastic happen. I hope that he is involved in several walk-offs and he is the he is the protagonist of those moments because this has the potential to dog him for a long time. Yeah. Just to recap here, so it's the third inning of this game between the Cubs and the Pirates. Two outs, crucially. Yes. Runner on second, Javier Baez up. And here's how the play log reads on MLB Game Day. <laughs> Javier Baez reaches on a fielder's choice. It certainly was a choice yeah. <laughs> by a fielder. Fielded by third baseman Eric Gonzalez, Wilson Contreras scores, Javier Baez to second. Javier Baez advances to second on a throwing error by catcher Michael Perez. That really doesn't do justice to the play here and the fact that Michael Perez is the one who had the error charged on him. I mean, he should have. He threw the ball away and allowed Baez to advance, but really that was created by a a mental error of epic proportions, which you will not find in the box score. So Will Craig had a number of options here when he received this ball as Baez was running to first. He could have touched the base for one thing. (laughs) The easiest option he had was just to put his little footsie on the bag (laughs) and then and then the inning is done and we Mm -hmm. all move on with our lives. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And he kind of he came off the bag a little bit to catch the throw. I don't know if he had to or whether he did that because the runner was going for third or or whether it was just that Baez had stopped or or what exactly was happening there. But he kind of came off the bag and went after Baez when at any point he could have just retreated and stepped on yep. the bag and that would have forced Baez out and it would have ended the play. He also had the option of tagging Baez, yeah. and instead of doing that, he, he kind of jogged at him yes. and was just a few feet away, and, and it looked like he could have applied the tag, but didn't. Yes, He could also have chased him all the way back to the plate, in yes. which case I think Baez would have been out as well. Yes, And I saw some people were confused about, like, can Baez run backward? And yes, he can, as long as he hasn't passed first base, as long right. as he hasn't crossed that base, he can go back. You can't cross a base and then go back but if you haven't yet reached the base you can go back as long as you don't go back all the way to the base that you have already passed or or started at in this case so in any of those cases Baez would have been out and the run would not have scored even if the runner had crossed home plate in this case with two outs where it's a force play the runner still has to make it to first for that run scored to count so there were any number of options here none of which Pirates rookie Will Craig availed himself of and I feel bad focusing on that I guess it's more fun to focus on Baez magic than Will Craig incompetence but that is basically what it was like if we want to credit Baez for some magic here I guess we could say like he was just so enticing 
that he he managed to make Will Craig temporarily forget how to play baseball. And he was just so mesmerized by the sight of Paez dancing back toward home plate that he forgot about how force plays work and how playing first base works. <laughs> so we yeah. could give Paez that credit. And certainly we've seen him have some extraordinary slides and apply some extraordinary tags. And, and there is such a thing as Paez magic. But I don't know that that was what was going on in this case. It, it was like... Very much an analog of like that 2012 Astros play that is always set to yakety sacks where yeah. they're just like throwing the ball over the infield and running into each other. And I did see yakety sacks applied to this play as well, although it doesn't work quite as well because they weren't throwing the ball away as many times. This was more of a mental mistake than an error of execution. So things went horribly wrong here. <laughs> It really reminded me of certain stress dreams that I've had about work where I find myself suddenly unable to perform some basic task. I'm trying to get somewhere and I can't quite find it. I just never really reach it. Or I'm trying to do something and I just can't quite accomplish it, even if it's some routine task. And in the moment, it doesn't seem that strange. It's frustrating and maybe anxiety-inducing, but reality is sort of skewed. And then you wake up and you realize it was a dream and it's a great relief. And you go over the events of that dream and you realize, well, there's no way that this could have happened. Why didn't I do this or that? Now the solution seems so simple. Well, because it was a dream and dreams don't make sense. Just step on the base. And that was what seemed to happen with Will Craig here, except it wasn't a dream and he never woke up. Yeah, I like the idea. And this is not what happened. I want to preface what I'm about to say by acknowledging that I don't think this is what occurred. But I like the idea that we all, you know, kind of saw this and are our instinct, our basis instinct was to say, if we make this about Javier Baez, it's nice to Will Craig. <laughs> yeah. I like very much that reading of human nature. Again, I do not think it is supported by the text, but I do like the idea that we were like, oh, if we linger <laughs> on that too long, this guy might like become a salesman. Like he might just stop <laughs> playing baseball. Yeah. He'll have other good plays in all likelihood. It's oh, it's gonna be okay. But this is a bad bad one <laughs> like this is a this is a real goof yeah but i like the idea that we were all just like oh i can't dwell on that that'll that'll be too unkind <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna marvel at javi because javi so often gives us stuff to marvel on i thought the most impressive part of this entire play when it comes to bias was that he managed to signal that Contreras was safe yes <laughs> and then still had time in part because of an error but still had time then to get down the line <laughs> <laughs> so like that part of it's fun like if you want to fixate on a fun bit we should we should uh focus on that but <laughs> oh pirates yeah you know they were kind of due right like maybe not this colossal of a of a goof but they were sort of due because i think that one of well, one of my impressions of this season has been you know the pirates are not a good team but they are not i thought they would be so much worse than they have been True. and so maybe they were just kind of Maybe they were just kind of due for like a an epic screw up to make us go, oh, pirates. Because mm -hmm. they don't even have the worst record in baseball, do they? No, they don't. Nope. Mm -mm. I mean, I think Will Craig probably escaped some notice just probably because people hadn't heard of Will Craig, right. <laughs> although now they have, yeah. or at least more had than before. And oh, yeah, hopefully this is not what he'll be known for forever, but this will be a staple of the blooper reels if we even still have blooper reels at this point. So, and I know that uh, he's played a lot of third base in the past and a little outfield, but you know, he's played <laughs> enough first base in his day that... Uh, 
probably should have had a better he knows understanding. what a force is. Like, yeah, I think he probably does. <laughs> I think it's just, it's like I said earlier, it was a simultaneous brain freeze and fart. And yeah. um, those are bad to, to put in conjunction with one another. And it led to, oh, I'm watching it again. And there are just so many... There are just so many opportunities for him to course correct, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many chances in the midst of this highlight for him to just be like, oh, I've, right. come, I've come to myself. I mm -hmm. will just go back to first base, my <laughs> home that I have abandoned, and put my little footsie on the bag and call it good. Like all, There are so many chances for him to do that. And then what would have happened is he would have gone back and he would have gotten the out and he would have looked sheepish and he would have been so adorable and we would have been like, ah, <laughs> oh, that Will Craig, what a good sport he is about himself. He's just, he made a goof and he knows it and he's making that face that you make when you make a goof and we would have been like, oh, Will, we trust you to babysit our kids. Mm -hmm. But instead, Dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, no. Baez basically stole first base and then took second. And also, Baez came around to score. So, two runs scored in oh, that inning no. as a result of this play. And the Cubs won that game by two runs as it happened. So, those oh. were pretty costly. <laughs> what oh, well. A disaster. I feel so badly for him. He'll learn from it. He won't make this same mistake again, I imagine. No, but it's just the good news is that it is in the grand scheme of things, like this is not a consequential moment to make that bad of a blunder, right? Like True. the pirate season isn't going anywhere. It sure it like definitely cost them this game. <laughs> like, you know, like I wonder uh, what is what is Will Craig's win probability <laughs> number for this? Can I navigate my own website quickly enough to do this? Man, sometimes a win probability graph just doesn't do justice to what happened no, in the moment. Because the doesn't. bias fielder's choice is like, you know, this looks like a, a normal ass play. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that I want, people sometimes ask us, like, what stat do you want to see? And we have so many stats out there that there aren't that many on my wish list. There are some like, yeah, I'd like to see, I don't know, pitch selection and game calling quantified and that sort of thing. But really, I'd like a better, more comprehensive win expectancy yeah. model. Just so that, you know, because as it is, it's like defense doesn't really work so well with that. The pitcher gets credit for the defensive plays. And I remember Sam wrote an article once where he just tried to break down like who exactly would get the credits and debits on every stage of yeah. a play. And there's so many elements to each play. And we do have StatCast now and everything is tracked. So in theory, you could come up with a unified model of like who contributed what to that play exactly and just apportion out that credit and blame precisely over the course of a season. And that would be great. We're a long way from being able to do that. But the current WPA win probability added, it's a long way away from actually getting it right. So if you could break this down and debit Will Craig appropriately, I mean, I'm glad that he gets to uh, slide under the radar as far as win probability is concerned. But really... You could debit him quite a few percentage points for this one. Well, the funny thing is that because Craig himself reached on that, I also just as a person who's like 
friends with recent guest Craig Goldstein enjoy that everyone's just saying, ah, Craig really botched it today. (laughs) It's funny. We love him. It's a joke amongst friends. The funny thing is that Craig himself reached on an error by Javier Baez later in this game. And so, Mm -hmm. and it was quite consequential because it was in the bottom of the ninth inning um, with them down two runs. So he actually does not have a negative win probability added for this (laughs) game as a result of Javier Baez's error. So Javi felt bad too. All right. He well, wanted to something. hand it back to him. He was like, "You're gonna get pilloried on Twitter for at least another. Like, this is gonna be on Sports Center a lot. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be on every edition of Sports Center." Yep. Oh well. Mm-hmm. Baez, by the way, still making the slash line work. Like he's a thirteen percent above the average hitter <sighs> for the season with a sixty-three to six strikeout to walk ratio, which I think is. <laughs> less lopsided than it was the last time we talked about it. So his numbers have uh, kind of come back to reality almost. His strikeout rate is only 35.4% and his walk rate is 3.4%, which really isn't that out of line with his past numbers. No. And, and his power has been there. So it's kind of working almost for him. He had an OBP above 300 before Thursday's game. Yeah, geez. His free agency is going to be so weird. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that's going to go. But man, well, Craig, I hope that whoever whoever's hugs mean the most to you, <laughs> I hope you get one today. Me too. So. so I also want to salute the streaker from Wednesday in the Nationals game. I assume you saw there was just a, a torrential downpour in D.C. and the Nats game was stopped and a streaker Buck naked took advantage of this moment to take center stage and he ran in and there's a, a full video which I will link to. He he made it about a minute and a half before security managed to accost him and take him off the field. But it was a really creative run. For one thing, I thought it was considerate of him to streak when the game was already suspended. Extremely. You know? He wasn't taking up anyone's time. No no action was happening. The few fans in the stands actually got more entertainment than they would have otherwise. He was totally naked and it was like the Shawshank scene and he was it was just, you know, coming down and he was drenched but not at all abashed about that. Just standing with his arms up raised right over the Skittle sign on the tarp and the text that said, taste the rainbow, and you really could taste it. I wonder whether Skittles appreciated the publicity or whether that was not the type of exposure, so to speak, that they are looking for as a brand. The footage that I saw, it was very like artful, where you couldn't really see too much. You could tell that he was naked, but you couldn't really see the intimate details in most of the, the shots that I saw in some press box video that made the rounds where you couldn't really resolve just you know on the level to uh, to make anything family unfriendly but it was really creative that he ran onto the tarp from the outfield and he slipped and I think that was unintentional but then he said hey that was fun and he did the full slip and slide and just kicked up a wake and it was uh, you know the tarp was covered with water and he looked like he was having the time of his life and then he hid inside the tarp roller thingy and he was in there for like a full minute as security people were trying to flank him and like one guy was peering into the tube from one end and (laughs) the other guy was on the other end and he was just hanging out in the middle I don't know why he came out. I don't know if they were just threatening him or managing to talk him out of there because the security people didn't go in to get him. So if he'd wanted to, he probably could have dragged it out longer and just hung out in there for a while. But 
I don't think I had ever seen anyone elude capture that effectively and creatively. So he really took advantage of the tools available to him. He seized the moment, and I thought it was just a really good way to streak. If you're going to streak, which you probably shouldn't, but if you are, just go for it. You know, <sighs> Just bear it all and pick your spot so that you're doing it at a time when you're not delaying the game for anyone or endangering or, or threatening any players or anything. You are just delighting in nature. Yeah, I wonder what the men- like what the calculus is in that moment though because <laughs> yes, I I agree with you that of the moments that a streaker could take the field, this was a considerate one because so often it is disruptive and you know, you don't need to see the delay there and very rarely do broadcasts show you streaking because they don't want to right. encourage people to do it. So, you know, they tend to be pretty reserved and not just because of the potential for you know, the money shot. <laughs> so it's always sort of a an inconsiderate thing and sort of a strange thing to do. Like, I don't quite understand the satisfaction one derives from it. I imagine that for many streakers, they are in some sort of altered state, perhaps as a result of having too many beers while at the ballpark. But it's always weird to me. And in a moment like that, it's like, are you really so bored by a rain delay that you're like, I'm going to risk prosecution and not being able to come back? <laughs> mm -hmm. So that part of it remains strange. But those are, you know, those are problems that affect that person in the future and really only them in the future. It does not inconvenience uh, professional athletes trying to do their jobs. So I guess if you're going to inconvenience anyone, it's best to do it to yourself rather than other people. But yes, it is. It was a, a funny bit of business, but maybe they were just like the, the potential for slip and slide too strong. Yeah. You know, right. it was too alluring a temptation. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it was worth the fines are not small when you do that. Like they they yeah. really come at you when mm -hmm. you streak. They really don't want you to do it. They well, really don't want you to. <laughs> if he wears clothes the next time he tries to go to the ballpark, who would recognize him? He could oh. probably just slip in unrecognized. How do so. they enforce facility bans? This is the thing it I don't know. It can't be very effective. I've, I assume that they have uh, like pictures up or headshots or mugshots or something up there. And I don't know, descriptions, names, but it, it can't be very effective at stopping people, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how they do it because you know like we saw on on wednesday you know there were nba playoff fans who were terrible to russell westbrook and that guy got like hammer bands like they were they took it very seriously they they were appropriately they're like hey you can't come to this person's workplace and harass them like that's mm -hmm. not cool and i was heartened to see that they were like you just you can't come back and you can't come back here at all to any other you know games or concerts i would imagine or anything else that goes on at this arena but i do always wonder like how do they how do they make sure like if someone else buys the tickets so we're gonna get like seven emails in response to this <laughs> and i'm actually excited because i don't know the answer to that it seems like the sort of thing that you wouldn't even have to you know disguise yourself or put on a goofy fake mustache or anything like that you could just like grow your hair Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there could be some sort of database, some no fly list for fans where your name and information gets cross referenced if you purchase tickets online sure. or something. But if you're just a walk up and you're buying a paper ticket, if people right. still do that, then I don't know how they could stop you. So yeah, I just Googled it and I see an article from 2017 at CNN.com. Stadiums can ban a fan for life, but they can't easily enforce it. And yeah. it says, uh, how does such a ban work before ejecting a disorderly 
quarterly fan. Teams typically make them sign a document agreeing to a ban, security experts say. If the fan returns, they can be arrested for trespassing, even if they behave themselves. Experts say this can sometimes act as a deterrent. A team can check ticket buyers' names against a database of banned fans, and security officers are shown photos of prohibited fans and told to be on the lookout. But, uh, yeah, in practice, it's pretty tough. So some security expert says the venues take it very seriously. If someone is stupid enough to get kicked out of a stadium, they're stupid enough to try to get back in. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. But the article goes on to say security experts say there is little teams can do to stop determined fans from returning to games. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you have a face tattoo... Then I think it's probably easier. But most people are pretty, you know, we're not necessarily great at picking out faces reliably. And you can't really do it by name because we're, (laughs) this sounds like a, you know, Meg takes exactly one token, then says something. There's like a (laughs) lot of names that are the same, man. And so Mm -hmm. like you couldn't reliably do it based on that. But yes, I, I imagine the threat of more serious prosecution probably play some role plus the fines. But yeah, it seems like a tricky bit of business. Just stay in your seat. That's all. That's all you got to do. The article goes on to say that facial recognition software could solve this problem. (laughs) But then we get into creepy Big Brother territory too. So pluses and minuses. No, thank you. I'd (laughs) say no, thank you. Mm -hmm. So speaking of enforcement, I guess we should talk a little bit about the foreign substances controversy from Wednesday. So... This happened after we recorded with Craig Goldstein, and he was talking about how banning foreign substances effectively and really policing that might be one solution to the strikeout scourge, which we have talked about on the podcast before. And there was one isolated instance here of trying to police foreign substances, and it was not well received. So this happened in the Cardinals game. Cardinals reliever Giovanni Gallegos came into the game, and second base umpire Dan Bellino thought he spotted some sort of substance on Gallegos's cap, and he alerted Joe West, new record holder for all-time games umpired, and West came out before Gallegos pitched, and he told him that he had to surrender his hat. He had to change hats and that the hat would be confiscated and sent to whatever facility where MLB is supposedly testing these things. And Cardinals manager Mike Schilt came out, and he was upset about this, and he got ejected. And after the game, he went on sort of an extended rant about why he objected to Gallegos being targeted here. And he made a lot of sense, although I was conflicted about some aspects of what he said. And for what it's worth, Gallegos went on to pitch quite well. And uh, he pitched an inning in two-thirds and was very effective. And his spin rate was barely down from what it usually was. I saw Eno Saris said he was like 30 RPM off of his typical average, which is not much. You know, that could be nothing, or maybe it could be him not getting to use uh, sunscreen and rosin or something, but there was no evidence that he was using some sort of designer substance that would up his spin rate by hundreds of RPM because it, it really wasn't far off his typical rate. So That's that. Now, Schilt, after the game, explained his rationale and why he was upset about this. And I will link to the full video. I think it's worth watching, but I will read some of the the highlights of his comments here. He said, so why do I take exception to that? Because this is baseball's dirty little secret, and it's the wrong time and the wrong arena to expose that. Gio wears the same hat all year. Hats accrue dirt. We pitched him in a day game. Did Gio have some sunscreen? Does he use rosin to help? Well, possibly. Are these things baseball really wants to crack down on? No, it's not. 
I know that completely firsthand from the commissioner's office. That is not anything that is going to affect his ability to compete. And he went on to say MLB has got a very, very tough position here because there are people that are effectively not even trying to hide, essentially flipping the bird at the league with how they're cheating and this game with concocted substances. There are players that have been monetized for it. There are players that are obviously doing it, going to their glove. There's clear video of it. You can tell what pitchers are doing because they don't want to go to their mouth, which Geo does off the rubber. He did not say the name Trevor Bauer, (laughs) but that was uh, one of the subtext to his comments here, although Bauer is far from the only one. But he went on to say, understandably, and I know this comfortably, that MLB is trying their best to police this in a manner that doesn't create any black eyes for the integrity of the game we love. But speaking of integrity, how about the integrity of the guys that are doing it clean? How many guys that are pitching their tails off in MLB that are doing it clean and have an unfair competitive advantage for the guys who are clearly loading up concoctions that they actually advertise don't do anything to hide in plain view? That's who I'm sticking up for. So, you know, he says he's sticking up for the victims of foreign substances and pitchers who are pitching clean and not using this. He's also obviously just sticking up for his player, for Gallegos. and. His case here is essentially that, well, why aren't they checking everyone, especially why aren't they checking the players who it seems more obvious that they are doing something, that there is more evidence. And that is true. You know, why are they singling out Gallegos here? You could make that case like, you know, if you're not doing it to Bauer, if you're not doing it to many others or you did it to Bauer once and we haven't heard anything about the ball that was confiscated from him then why Gallegos all of a sudden? I guess you could also say, well, you have to start somewhere. And the fact that this caused as big of an uproar as it did helps to explain why this isn't policed more closely, where, you know, if an umpire actually does come out and try to do something about this, there's immediate blowback and the umpire is uh, going on a tirade about it and getting ejected. But he has a point and every manager is going to stick up for his team and his players. And That is something that makes this sort of inspection and enforcement difficult, I think. So so Schilt is right. Like, why start here with this one guy on this one day in particular? On the other hand, you could say, well, you got to start somewhere. And if we're going to object to every inspection, then how are we ever going to root out this problem? Right. I think that he was careful, appropriately careful to not pin this on Joe West as as necessarily inappropriate, like he is there mm-hmm. to enforce the rules, as Schultz said. I think that there is something to the idea of not only wanting to begin the enforcement with the worst offenders, right? The pitchers who seem very content to sort of jump up and down and say, look at me, look at me. <laughs> right. So I think there's something to that, not only because those folks have sort of self-identified for potential enforcement, but also because I think that there is a difference between sunscreen and rosin and the kinds of substances that like we discussed with Eno when we had our podcast a couple of months ago. And I don't think that, you know, seeing a spot on someone's hat is necessarily the most reliable indicator of this. What am I trying to say? Mm-hmm. The whole thing just seems and feels very haphazard. And yep. we talked a while ago about When you say at the beginning of a season, we're going to start enforcing a ban on foreign substances and there are going to be real consequences meted out for that and we're going to look at verifiable data, we're going to test baseballs from games, we're going to bring some rigor to this analysis and then 
take a step back and say, well, what we're really trying to do is some amount of fact-finding to see how pervasive the problem is and its exact nature, right? How much of it is rosin plus sunscreen, how much of it is a designer substance that is sort of understood purpose is to increase spin on the ball, how much of it is a combination of those things, how often are you using it, how often have you used it historically, can we sort of track when you started to deploy those. And I think that when you have a problem as broad as the foreign substance issue, which everyone says everyone is doing in some form, you want to bring sort of a rigor and a consistency to it, which is why I don't think that Joe West did anything wrong here, which is a weird sentence to say out loud. It's not one that we're necessarily occasioned to say out loud. Like if you are confronted head on with what you think is a violation of the foreign substance rule like it's not out of line to try to enforce it i do think that Mm -hmm. like the timing of it was a little bit funky here right Mm -hmm. like i kind of get what he's saying right that he hasn't thrown any pitches yet i don't know i'm not i'm not quite sure when the right moment would have been i don't know that there's anything nefarious like if you give the guy the opportunity to wear another hat you're not taking him out of the game so you're not right. denying him the ability to pitch Wes said he did it at that time basically to give Kaigos an out so that right. you know he would not actually have thrown a pitch with whatever foreign substance he was right. uh, supposed to have been using there so and so i think there's something to that right that you are kind of trying to maybe do the guy a solid Mm -hmm. but i also just think that leaving this to the discretion of individual umpires when the broader message about what you're doing and how you're doing it still seems to be muddled despite this being a stated priority of the league leaves room for shenanigans Mm -hmm. and it leaves room for inconsistent enforcement and i still don't know that i buy that they really care about this yeah and so I get why Schultz would be mad. And his job as a manager is to like stick up for his dude and to mm-hmm. like get sassy with Joe West. And I wish that he had had the opportunity to give Gallegos his hat, which is what he said he wanted to do. But then he <laughs> yes. got sidetracked by swearing at Joe West, which, you know, who hasn't been there, right? <laughs> but I still think that we need to have like a, a clearer understanding of what the what the league sees as the real issue here what is the real like sort of disallowed stuff and i know that they've they've been specific with clubs so i i don't mean to say that they haven't done something around this but it just still seems like there's a a weird gap between what they say is like a really stern enforcement priority and then like how many guys have been ejected how many guys have had their hats removed like where have we seen that enforcement manifest itself on the field this year mm-hmm. and why are we doing it against like a a reliever when Trevor Bowers jumping up and down being like please won't you <laughs> right yeah so i don't know the whole thing seems very muddled and strange and with an issue this pervasive it's it's hard to say that it's being taken seriously if the approach isn't both broader and more obviously rigorous and and there are probably things going on here that we're not aware of and so maybe i'm being a little bit unfair that there is rigor that we're just not seeing and i know that they are taking balls from games so it's not as if like nothing is being done but it does it still strikes me as kind of haphazard so 
Yeah, judging by Schilt's comments here and the comments in the recent Athletic article by Ken Rosenthal and Brittany Droli, it seems like there's just a lot of confusion and consternation about what, if anything, is actually being done. And Schilt said, again, seemingly alluding to Bauer, although not necessarily Bauer alone, you can see based on spin rates how guys' careers are jumping off the charts, and then you can do cause and effect. Is our house 100% clean? I certainly hope so. Am I creating more awareness to our group, potentially? By that, I think he meant, you know, is he uh, drawing more attention and more scrutiny to his pitchers? Then he said, but let's go check the guys that are sitting there going to their glove every day with filthy stuff coming out. Not some guy before he has even stepped on the mound with a spot on his hat. That's how you want to start policing this. And for what it's worth, Bauer, in addition to the sudden and dramatic spin rate spike in September 2019, there was a YouTube video that just came out that I will link to. That was compiled by Tony Adams, the Astros fan who created signstealingscandal.com and was on the podcast to talk about it. He's the one who listened to all of the Astros plate appearances from 2017 and logged all of the bangs. And he has done a, a similar data gathering project here where he watched hundreds of Bauer pitches. It looks like maybe all of Bauer's pitches from this year to see how often he goes to his glove. And his conclusion is that Trevor Bauer goes to his glove about 62% of the time before catching a new ball put in play. He goes to his glove about 7% of the time when he gets the same ball back. What is he doing? So there seems to be a difference there. I have not verified those conclusions. Uh, It's a 14-minute video of hundreds and hundreds of pitches. But if he has logged that accurately, then perhaps that is semi-suspicious. Or, you know, I don't know. It could just be your basic sunscreen and resin with a new ball that any pitcher would do. But we know that Bauer has certainly experimented with more effective and exotic substances. So Schilt also said, I'm not faulting Joe at all. They chose to enforce something that looked somewhat suspicious to them. That's part of their job to police the game. I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not challenging that. I'm only challenging the fact that there's much more egregious things happening in real time that aren't being challenged. Having to police foreign substances, candidly, shouldn't have to be part of their job. That's an interesting part of this. He also kind of walked back his initial comments, maybe in an effort to avoid a suspension and (laughs) said, I have a great working relationship with the umpires and Major League Baseball. They have a lot of challenges to doing their job and they do it well. Having to police foreign substances candidly shouldn't have to be part of their job. So that idea that it shouldn't be part of the umpire's job. I guess the question is, whose job would it be? It it has to be someone's job, and the umpires are on the field. They're the one kind of tasked with upholding the laws in person. So you could have inspections in the dugout and the bullpen and everywhere, which supposedly is happening or, or is supposed to happen, that they have monitors in the clubhouse and elsewhere keeping an eye on this stuff. But the umpires are the law on the field. And it's awkward because they kind of have to have a relationship with the players and coaches and managers. And so it puts them in an awkward position to like have to get along with everyone, but then also be the ones who are saying, hey, empty your pockets and show me your glove and your hat and you know, prove to me that you're not cheating all the time. And how often are they going to do that? Is it going to be every half inning? Is it going to be how thorough is the inspection going right. to be? There are a lot of places where you can hide something and slather something. So really, unless we want everyone to get as naked as that streaker, then (laughs) it would be hard to entirely eradicate this. And 
it's a tough thing because like the umpires traditionally have been charged with this duty, but they haven't really been backed up by the league itself, kind of giving them the explicit authority to do this, or at least confirming, yes, they are acting under our orders. This is what we want them to do. You must comply with them. And so every time they do it, someone yells at them and then they have to eject someone. And that's pretty unpleasant. So it seems like MLB really has to lay down the line, either have some sort of standard process here where it's like, yep, you have to have these inspections. We're not even giving the umpires a choice. Like it's not up to them. They're just following orders, you know, kind of take the capacity to blame the umpires out of the equation and just say, oh, it's Rob Manfred. He made me do it. So something like that. But ultimately, the umpires are the ones there. So they might have to be the ones kind of putting this into practice. And I think that if that is, I think that if it is backed by both a consistent approach and the, you know, further collection and analysis of baseballs and spin rates so that there is some data rigor that goes on beyond it so that, you know, if a guy isn't being overly suspicious, there is another means by which his potential use of a foreign substance could maybe not be officially proven, but would at least give future umpiring crews something to look for right like if mm-hmm. you know we'll just we'll stick with bauer just for, because of course we will but um you know if he suddenly shows another spin rate spike and the umpires while you know officiating that game didn't see anything that struck them as worthy of inspection well maybe the next time he's gonna start that crew gets a report on i don't know guys that they should be on the watch for or something i don't know Mm -hmm. like there's this weird balance to be struck because i do think that a lot of pitchers are using something how nefarious that substance is really varies we talked about the circumstances under which a foreign substance might end up on a baseball through no fault of the pitchers right so Mm -hmm. there is margin for error here i'm just sort of fundamentally uncomfortable with that much surveillance generally (laughs) like it kind of skews me out but i think that for a problem that's pervasive it might be necessary and so i think that if you you know as mlb seemed to be doing at the beginning of the season had a clear set of standards involved you know maybe you check the pitcher every three innings or something you collect some percentage of baseballs which i think they are doing um, Mm -hmm. but you do it more systematically so it's just every start every game you got the balls you go send them to the lab they get tested and you go from there i think that there is a way to do it where you both have backup for the umpires if for some reason they're looking at a guy and they're like he seems fine but Mm -hmm. that you know you are gonna end up having umpires who need to be sort of at the forefront of this and that's where you want there to be sort of a consistent understanding of how often and how rigorous their checks of these guys should be but like if you watch a major league broadcast or even an amateur broadcast, you know, you're gonna, if you're looking for it, you're going to be unable to stop seeing it, mm-hmm. right? You're gonna notice who goes to their belts. You're gonna notice who goes to their hat. You're gonna notice who's spinning the, you know, the ball in the glove. Like, you're going to start noticing that stuff. And if it's transparent enough on a broadcast that a ball is being doctored, then you kind of have to have something on the back end of that from an enforcement perspective. Or you just say, here are the substances you can use and here are the ones that you can't. And then you test baseballs for the stuff on the banned list and kind of go from there. Like that would mm-hmm. be the probably that would be the set of circumstances under which you have the umpires needing to do the least because then you just have the guy sitting by the dugout and they throw out the balls that don't go over the fence 
and all of them get tested. And if they're positive for whatever, you know, the banned list of substances in, it merits further investigation, which doesn't necessarily mean like that a guy's going to get automatically suspended. But, you know, if if what the substance is, therefore, is to enhance spin rate, it's probably not going to just be sunscreen and rosin and, pine, you know, like that's yeah. not the stuff that you're going to find. It's mm-hmm. not the ancillary oops-a-daisy, you know, our catcher has something on his glove and our, you know, fielders have stuff on theirs. Like it's going to be stuff that is specifically designed for spin. So right. it seems like there's something that could be done that's more systematic. And then you end up with, the, the secret undetectable stuff that I worried about when we first talked about this, but that's a problem for another day. We're not even at the point where we have to worry <laughs> about this the super secret sauce. Yeah. We just need to find the, the regular secret sauce. I agree with Schilt that it is baseball's dirty little secret or certainly one of them, and it's not really much of a secret anymore. No. <laughs> but I do think that they have to figure this out or this is going to keep coming up. Or it just won't come up because umpires will give up entirely and then we will continue to have rising spin rates and whiff rates and the like. So I do think that something has to be addressed here and maybe Schilt calling attention to it in this way will help. So I wanted to just read a a quick comment from New Era in response to Capgate that we discussed with Craig last time. Still so many questions about this whole saga, and this doesn't really lift the veil that much. But the Washington Post, Scott Allen wrote a little bit about the New Era caps that were pulled on the same day that they were announced and got a comment from New Era explaining why the caps were pulled. And the New Era spokesman wrote, it recently came to our attention that a few caps omitted a relevant area code. In light of this, we removed the collection from our website so we could review the design accuracy of all the caps. We apologize for any unintentional design mistake with regard to this collection. So spokesman didn't say how it came to their attention, maybe through thousands of tweets. And I didn't also acknowledge the many other errors and strange decisions that came into play on these caps. But that is the official reason why the caps were pulled, that there were issues with uh, relevant area codes. So they pulled those so they can fix that. And maybe once they fix the area code issue, they'll be back on sale and you can wrestle with whether you want to buy one or not. So it's about ethics and cap design? Mm-hmm. Yep. Ethics and area codes, at least. Wow. I mean, I guess that if you're designing a cap, I don't know, factual accuracy would like not be high on my list, but generally you aren't putting things on caps that that merit fact checking (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's either the logo or it's not right i guess in that way you're worried about like design fidelity but you're not sitting there going like is that really one of the area codes of the (laughs) city of kansas city like you're not worried about that generally but then they had to go and see this is why no one should have ambition because if you're just not ambitious then you're not going to run into these problems you're going to stick the same old kc on there and be like this is fine Mm-hmm. And the last bit of banter I have is asking you whether you have reached the point yet, whether you are at all concerned about Francisco Lindor. Have you gotten to that point yet? Because I've been putting off this conversation, figuring that he would write the ship soon, and perhaps he still will. But it is notable now that he has not. And he's, what, 186 plate appearances, I think, into his season, 185 Ooh. And he is batting 185, 290, 268. That is a 66 WRC+. He has never had a stretch of this many games where he has hit this poorly in his career. As we speak, there are 156 hitters 
who have made at least 150 plate appearances. Lindor's WRC Plus is 15th worst among those, so he has been among the worst hitters in baseball. And the Mets swept a doubleheader, a, a Manfred special on Thursday, but Lindor didn't do much to contribute to that and really just hasn't done a whole lot to contribute, at least offensively, for a while now. And they really need him because, as we have discussed, everyone else is hurt. <laughs> so if there were a time when he was going to step up and carry the team to the extent that any baseball player can carry a baseball team, this would be it. This would be a pretty good moment for him to have a hot streak. So not only have the Mets been down most of their actual lineup but Lindor has not looked at all like he was supposed to and like he has in the past so friend of the show and former effectively wild Mets preview guest Disha Thosar wrote on Thursday in a column for the Daily News just how long are we supposed to wait on Francisco Lindor and I guess the answer is that you'll wait until 2031 if that's what it takes because that's how long he's under contract with the Mets but you know I keep expecting that he will pull himself out of this because he's just too good to be this bad. It's a really strange statistical profile also. I mean, yeah. I will admit that I I think perhaps out of self-preservation <laughs> and not wanting to overreact, that's a better reason, have, have not been sort of obsessively clicking to Lindor's player page because, mm-hmm. well, one, I follow enough Mets fans on Twitter to kind of get the gist <laughs> yeah. of it without having to look, but it's a really odd profile because... So if you look at his expected stats versus his actual stats, we might say that he is dramatically underperforming where we'd expect him to be, right? So he has a 260 Mm -hmm. WOBA, but he has a 310 X WOBA. He has a 272 slugging, but a 347 X slugging. This is These expected stats do not include today's game action, so they might Mm -hmm. change ever so slightly just in case people are wondering. So, and you know, he has a 185 batting average and a 225 X batting average. So like sometimes the expected stats aren't telling a great story, but they are telling a marginally better story than the one that we're getting. And so then you think to yourself, okay, so why might he be underperforming that? And you look to things like, he only has a 203 BABIP. Well, Mm -hmm. that seems concerning. Is he slowing down? Perhaps he is nursing an injury that we haven't been made aware of because you also would look to say his ground ball rate and see that it is the highest it has been in quite some time. He has a 49.6% ground ball rate. And that's the highest it's been since 2016 when he had a 49.2% ground ball rate. But then in 2016, he had a 324 BABIP and he hit 301 and he knocked 15 home runs and he was worth five and a half wins. You know, he had a 340 WOBA and a 109 WRC plus. So it was like, okay, this was a year where he wasn't amazing with the bat. He was really bolstered by his defensive efforts, but he wasn't what he is now, right? He was. It wasn't like anemic to the extent that it is at the moment. And then you look at his stack at stuff and you're like, no, he's like 69th percentile, 69th percentile for sprint speed. So it's like, okay. So it's just very strange. Like what's going on with yeah. him? His sprint speed is basically unchanged, unchanged from what it was in the last couple of seasons. So it doesn't seem like that's an issue. His hard hit rate is the same or better than it was in previous years. That's like the percentage of balls hit at 95 miles per hour or above. His max exit velocity is, you know, right around where it's been before. So it's not like he's suddenly entirely stopped hitting the ball hard or even hitting it hard all that less often than he used to. So 
it is strange and you're right like his expected stats wouldn't make him the superstar that the Mets expected to get but they would help him escape a lot of the scrutiny that he has received so far and he'd be fine like no one would be really worrying about Francisco Lindor if he had played to his expected stats thus far and like his strikeout rate is not spiking or anything it's basically where it's always been he's walking more he's, he's walking a little more if anything He's been more selective. He has chased less often than right. he has in any previous season. So it doesn't seem like his plate discipline has totally fallen apart. So it's a tough one to diagnose. And I guess that is a good thing in a way in that it makes you think, well, maybe it's still kind of fluky, even though we're approaching 200 plate appearances here. But really, it could just be like bad luck and bad bounces and low BABIP and low home run per fly ball rate and everything. I mean, it's probably not just that. And he is coming off of last season, which was a down year for him, although still like average offensively. And, you know, maybe he's not going to be what he was in 2018 again. Maybe that raised expectations too high. Maybe that was a career year offensively, but it would really surprise me if he didn't get back to like 2017, 2019 level of being comfortably above average with right. that. So he's been durable and that is something that has been in short supply for the Mets. So right. that's good, but he has not done with those plate appearances what you would have thought. Although like he's still been above average as a base runner, he's still been a good fielder and that mm-hmm. was a big reason of why they wanted Francisco Lindor. Right. He's been an elite glove guy and the Mets have had a lot of lousy shortstops in the past several seasons and at least according to Statcast outs above average he is, I think, sixth among infielders and second among all shortstops. So that's pretty impressive. The top two are Angelton Simmons and Matt Chapman. So nice to see that those guys' defensive skills still seem to be intact after their recent injuries. But yeah. that part of Lindor's game doesn't seem to have slumped and he seems to be healthy as far as we can tell. So you kind of have to go with the long-term track record and say that he's going to pull himself out of this at some point. And maybe if you're a Mets fan, the positive spin on all of this is that everyone has been hurt. (laughs) Noah Syndergaard now is hurt again. And the initial reports about how seriously he was hurt turned out to maybe have understated the extent of the injury. (sighs) Stop me if you've heard that about a Mets player before. But you're still in first place, you know, even with everyone dropping like flies, even with Lindor not hitting at all, still in first place. So if those guys get back and the team starts to hit like it's supposed to and you do eventually get Carrasco and Syndergaard, et cetera, like maybe it all comes together and your second half is even stronger than the first. But it has not been the beginning to his Mets career that anyone would have wanted. No. And, you know, like the... His like ex Wobicon is low. I don't know, man. It's a weird it's a weird bit of business. And so you do just wonder, like you said, if he's gonna at some point he'll come out of the skid. But it is it is disconcerting. He is at least on the field every day. And I have seen a lot of people who are trying to link what's going on now as sort of a continuation of what happened in twenty twenty, where, you know, he, he had like a one oh two WRC plus and you know, he hit eight home runs. He only hit 258. Like he's, you know, he had a, a down year for him offensively, even within the context of other years where he hasn't been quite so comfortably above average. And I just don't, I don't know what to make of that. Like it's not an unreasonable thing to worry that this is a continuation of trend, but I just, 
am still sort of reticent to ascribe all that much weight to what happened in 2020. And like, he looked great in the spring. So yeah, right. You know, there's that at least. So yeah, it's really a conundrum. I mean, I think that in terms of being able to arrive at a conclusive and sort of satisfactory diagnosis of exactly what is wrong, it might end up being as unsatisfying as sometimes good players just have bad years. Mm -hmm. But it is, I think, a a sufficiently large sample where we can say, like, this isn't the best for 2021. It doesn't really alter my long-term expectation of him, like, considerably. But in terms of what I expect his, like, year-end war number to be for his first year with the Mets, like, yeah, you have to shade down after this. Like, you'd be foolish not to, Mm -hmm. even if I expect there to be some recovery in 2021 versus what we're seeing already. Man, Frankie, what a bummer. Yeah, I saw a quote from Mookie Betts the other day where it was a a story about his slow start, and it really hasn't been a bad start. He has a 125 WRC+. plus. Francisco Lindor wishes that he had that. That's like double what Lindor's is, but it's not characteristically great start for Mookie and he said sometimes you just don't play well which is you know (laughs) that's a pretty good explanation I mean I guess there's always a deeper explanation sure just have so many layers of information now that we can just keep drilling down until we get to like the finest little slivers of performance and try to figure out what exactly is going wrong but also sometimes you just don't play well and I guess you could pin it to why aren't you playing well? You're playing well because you're playing through injury or you're playing poorly because your mechanics are out of whack or whatever. Like, you know, you're dealing with something off the field. Like ultimately, I guess there's always a cause unless it is just bad luck. And in that case, you might not even say that you're not playing well. You're playing well. You're just getting unlucky. But sometimes it just happens. It just hasn't happened to Lindor for this amount of time. And to this degree, but I still have faith. I am not giving up on Francisco Lindor just yet. No. Oh, gosh, no. Oh, I think I called him Frankie. I shouldn't do that. He said that he doesn't like it when people call him Frankie. He wants to be Francisco. My apologies, Francisco. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I have maybe one or two emails here on the topic that we have discussed about the sticky stuff and umpiring. So maybe we can close with that. So we got one question from Benjamin, who says this is a question about a different kind of parody. So what if instead of draft order, your record determined how much sticky stuff your pitchers can use the following year? The Pirates can use anything. (laughs) The Dodgers can use nothing with a gradient in between. I fully admit that in reality, this would be very difficult to enforce, about as difficult as, say, it already is to police sticky stuff. So let's just assume the rule is followed as intended. Would it create more or less parity than draft order does right now? How would you ever do trades at the deadline if this were a rule? (laughs) I guess you just get to trade your pelican grip or whatever with you. Yeah, like how would you have confidence that a guy you were trading for, like if you, you know, you're the pirates and you have one good starter and that guy is able to use whatever he wants in terms of sticky stuff and the... Dodgers are like, we sure could use another one of those good starters because we love depth. And then do they trade for that guy? Does he get to keep using sticky stuff for the whole year? Is there no, a No, I don't think so. Is yeah. there a no trade clause for the <laughs> for the sticky stuff? I mean, I think that incentivizing teams to try to win 
is a good thing to do and increasing parity across baseball is good because fans should get to watch teams play that are trying to win and are potentially good at baseball. But I'm a little bit nervous about, apart from all the other things about this that seem like they would make (laughs) it impossible to do, I'm a little nervous about giving teams that have been that have been cheap for instance for a long time sort of a trapdoor to to suddenly being good in a year when they haven't really done other things necessarily to bolster their roster and here you know this is this is like kind of a weird time to pin this on the pirates because i do think that this current front office is at least uh, has a has a plan and is trying to build a competitive roster even if they are still required to do that very much on the cheap because of ownership um so i don't mean to pick on the pirates here but um since you know we were just gonna talk we were talking about the pirates um <laughs> i will pick on them a little bit more so i'm a, i'm a bit nervous about giving sort of a an out to teams to like be able to count on a potential bump from foreign substances now I guess we could ask, like, how much difference do you think this ends up making in the eventual record of a club that is able to use sticky stuff where other teams aren't? Because sure, your pitchers, like, maybe now your pitchers can really spin it, and that's great, but, like, you still have to score runs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I wonder how, now, run suppression is good, right? Uh, runs suppressed are uh, almost as valuable as, as runs scored, not quite, but because you got to score at least one. That's a requirement of baseball, Ben. Did you know that you have to score at least the one run in order to win a baseball game? That is so, true, yeah. There is a threshold there. I, I think I've seen some analyses that say like all else being equal, you, you might rather prevent a run than score a run, but you do need to make sure that you score, score at, least at least one. Score at least one. <laughs> that's right. pretty important. At yeah. least one. So like that's the that's the caveat to that analysis, which is that you gotta get at least the one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, like sticky stuff doesn't necessarily inspire you to say put your little footsie on first base. Sorry. <laughs> Pirates. We could keep harping on this for a second. So I wonder how big an effect it would have, but it would probably be worth a couple of runs over the course of a season because if you suddenly have really effective starters and you can, you know, cobble together a couple of runs a game or even just the one run a game, you're going to win more games than you would have without them being effective. And spin isn't the only thing that makes a pitcher effective, we should say. Like that yeah. isn't sufficient to, to make everyone good which we can probably feel confident saying if for no other reason than all of these guys seem to be using something and not everyone is like Jacob deGrom. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Jacob deGrom is using or not using. I, I don't mean to like point a finger. I'm not casting aspersions here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not everybody ends up being like a Cy Young candidate. So spin is not enough. You, you need good works too uh, yeah. in order to be good. But <laughs> it probably is worth a couple wins a year. This is like a terrible idea. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but I like thinking about it. So it's a very good question, even though I don't think it's a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be effective to some extent. To like some it, degree, yeah. More effective in that first season than yes. draft order, which doesn't do anything for you right. in the short term, really. Right. In for the long sure. term, it for might sure. help more, but maybe not. Like I I think one of the reasons why I think it is a dirty little secret, as Schilt said, or why MLB should crack down on this is that especially the way that pitchers are brewing up these substances now, I think it really can enhance your performance. When people say it matters more than PEDs, I think there is potentially some truth to that. I guess you could quantify, you know, all else being equal, how much better is a pitch that adds X RPM in spin rate and thus 
this amount of movement and and you could probably put some run value on that and then I guess you could extrapolate that over a full staff pitching for a full season and you could come up with some estimate but I imagine it would be worth at least a few wins to you, if not more. And yes, your pitching staff might still suck because if you're a terrible team and you have bad pitchers, even if they're spinning it more than anyone else, they might still be bad at pitching. There's more to pitching than spin, as you said. So it wouldn't be a panacea or anything. But if your only priority was just to make sure that you had more parity by taking the terrible teams and giving them a bit of a boost in the next season, yeah, I think it would work pretty well. And I was joking the other day about, well, maybe the Rockies hitters should just get the signs because yeah. they have to deal with the course Field hangover effect. So this would be sort of similar. But like you, yeah, you're kind of bailing out the ownership that is not investing in its roster. You're penalizing players on competitive teams yeah. whose stats are going to suffer because their team tried to win and also won successfully. Point. So that sort of sucks. So I agree that it is bad for any number of reasons, but I do think it would be kind of effective. It would be, I guess, if you could actually police this to the extent that you could say, yes, you are allowed to use this and this other team is not allowed to use this, and then you could actually enforce that. I think it would work pretty well. Oh, it would just be, what would the cutoff be? Like, what would the cutoff be? And is it just for sticky stuff or is it, is it for other forms of, you know, is it for signs too? Like how much do you yeah, want right. to how much do you want to put your thumb on the scale would be another important question that we would have to answer. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Allowing certain teams to cheat is probably not the best way out of this no. problem. I guess technically it's not cheating if you are allowing them to do it. Right. But, but, but also, like, if we agree that too much spin is bad because it means more strikeouts and all of that, then there's also the aesthetic issue. And if you want to crack down on this and prevent any pitchers from doing it, then you don't really want to make exceptions for bad teams because they can right. still strike guys out. So any number of reasons not to do this probably. Yeah. And again, not the least of which is that it does not, you know, make you remember how many outs there are. <laughs> right. I just feel so bad for him. I, I want to apologize again to him right now. He's not mm-hmm. listening. Oh, I hope I hope he doesn't consume any media for the next yeah. like, 36 hours. <laughs> that would yes. probably be smarter to just like not do any media at all. But Yeah. And then here's an umpiring question from Kevin, Patreon supporter. The talk about the perception of the quality of umpires on the last episode got me thinking that it's kind of odd that umpires rotate around the diamond. While there is certainly overlap, there are unique requirements for each position, and perhaps someone who's good at calling balls and strikes doesn't have a tuned ear-eye coordination, is that a thing, that would make them as good at accurately calling bang-bang plays at first. Perhaps they are good at seeing tag plays and would be more well-suited to second base, or are good at fair foul calls and one of the corner spots would be good, or they can actually tell if a batter swung on a check swing. NFL refs don't rotate. The back judge is a back judge all season. I understand there may be a need for some rotation so the plate umpire can make it through the summer, but maybe there shouldn't only be two umps on a crew that work the plate. Do you think umpiring would improve if umps were specialized in a position? If so, would the effects be noteworthy or just negligible? Well, that's a really good question. It is. Is part of the the thinking for rotating them that they don't want there to be a potential for bias? Is that a concern? Is that part of the stated rationale for having them rotate? 
I guess that could be part of it, or maybe it is just uh, lightening the load on, yeah. on certain guys. Like it's certainly more grueling and demanding to be the play dump. Than oh, for sure. Any other position, so maybe it is as simple as uh, just giving guys not a day off, but a lighter workload at least on some days. Like there might be burnout if you had someone behind the plate every day, so that could be one benefit to the current arrangement. Right. I think that there is probably some benefit there, but I don't think that the idea of having more specialization is necessarily bad just because we, well, I'm about to say a thing that I actually don't think is um, supported by data, not because the data says something that contradicts what I'm about to assert, but because I don't know that we have data on it. But, you know, we know which home plate umpires are sort of generally better than others, right? Mm -hmm. We have a we have a sense of who's getting strike calls correct and, and what have you. I don't think that we have any kind of data that sort of assesses the uh, performance of umpires occupying other spots in the field, right? Like nobody's nobody's like, oh, the tag play. I mean, I guess you could look at replay review and have a sense of what how often a guy's calls are overturned. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if there's no data that could be put behind that, but it does seem like there are guys who we know to be better at one very important aspect of the job than others. And so prioritizing the good umpires over those who are less good, but might have other skills is a way to, at the very least, like address an issue that, you know, is kind of fraught within the umpires union, I would imagine. So it doesn't require those guys to stop being umpires, but maybe puts them in a position where them being less good at calling balls and strikes doesn't have as significant an impact on the game. Mm -hmm. So I think in that respect, it's not a bad idea. Your poor knees, you know, yeah. the like <laughs> there is there is the the mental part of it that is grueling, right? Like having to be the home plate ump for, you know, a four game series is like you said, a lot more taxing, not just on their bodies, but like it is more intellectually taxing to have to do that, I would imagine, than being, you know, the guy who's at third base, right? Like it's just like it's mm -hmm. just harder. So in that respect, having, you know, two that are designated as the home plate umps who can maybe trade off every other game would be good. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it seems to me like there would be a benefit to specializing, yeah. at least at certain positions. You know, I don't know if there's someone who's way better at bang, bang plays at first sure. or something like maybe some of this stuff is just generalizable and anyone who makes it to the major league level can make those calls. But especially for the play dump, I would think that just seeing pitches every day would really be beneficial. Like it certainly seems like we hear all the time, at least, that for players, it's better to see pitches regularly and start regularly than to come off the bench sporadically. And part of that just has to be like plate discipline and picking up pitches and getting your mechanics and timing down and everything. And a lot of that applies to umpires, too. Maybe it's not quite as demanding, but it is a hard job to do well and an impossible job to do perfectly. And you would mm -hmm. think that just getting more reps and having a, a solid sense of the strike zone, a mental map of that area where it's not like, okay, I'm behind the plate today and then I'm rotating all over the field and I'm not going to be behind the plate again for a while. And by then I almost have to relearn, retrain myself how this works. Like it, it does sort of seem to me like you would think that just being behind the plate every day might give you some accuracy advantage. And to counteract the burnout problem, I, I guess you could just have more reserve umpires and maybe give guys days or weeks off here and there. And 
it might be a problem with travel and having crews go together everywhere. But if you could just have a, a dedicated pool of plate umps who only called balls and strikes and worked behind the plate, then maybe you could just have a, a whole pool of them just sitting somewhere and you could give guys days off in the middle of the season and they could rotate in and out and not work every day. I guess that would negate some of the advantage I was talking about of, of the repetition, but it seems like there might be a bit of a, a happy medium between every day and the current system where there could be a benefit. So would it be right. significant or negligible? I don't know. Like every little bit helps with that job, I think, because there are just so many pitches and so many borderline calls. So yeah. even if it's upping your rate by a percentage point or something, that's worthwhile possibly so i think it might make a difference and it is sort of strange and i'd never really considered how strange it is when we see players specialize at certain positions and you do see more and more multi-position players but you'd think that there could be some penalty associated with like going back and forth between positions on the field i think russell carlton studied that at some point and i'll link to his research but i would imagine that something might apply for umpires there too so I'm in favor of uh, having played umps at least the most important and demanding job, at least in this pre-robo-umps world, for them to get more regular looks and not be shifted all over the field all the time. Yeah, it seems like it would be beneficial. And if you can find a way to like do the load management yeah. satisfactorily, that, that you would... At least, and it could also be kind of a, you know, like you have crew chiefs, there is a system within the existing sort of architecture of umpiring where you're acknowledging seniority or expertise, but, you know, it does seem like if there is something special about having that role that you also could attract, you know, perhaps you can attract better umpires, perhaps you give umpires a thing to aspire to. And I don't mean to say that like they don't care about doing their jobs well now, I think they care very much, but it elevates them. They get to be, mm -hmm. it gets to be the all-stars, the all-stars of the umpiring world, where right. some, some of those positions might be a little bit more fungible, though, as you said, like maybe there are guys who are really good at bang bang plays. Maybe there are guys who are really good at like getting in there and being like, oh, his foot came off the bag a tiny bit. Maybe we sent those people back to the minors so that we stop having to look at those plays quite so much but you know there's there have to be guys who are better at some aspects of it than others and we know that mm -hmm. to be true for home plate stuff so it's probably true for other stuff on the field too yeah there are certain commonalities at every position you've right. got to know the rule book and you've got to be paying attention to things and you've got to be in the proper position but there are also quirks of each umpire position, and I guess by the time you get to the big leagues, you've done all of the umpiring jobs enough times that you can handle all of them fairly competently. But still, there must be different skill sets. So at that level, it is sort of odd that there's not more specialization. I guess as you're coming up through amateur ball and the minors and all of the lower levels where you don't have as big umpiring crews, I guess you get more reps behind the plate as you're coming up, which is probably good because if it's at all analogous to hitters who have to see a certain number of pitches to understand the strike zone, then probably good that umpires, I guess a higher percentage of the games that they work would be behind the plate right. at lower levels where you have smaller crews. So that's probably good. But still, like once you get to the big leagues, yeah, you might have a really great first base ump and a yeah. really good plate ump and maybe there would be some benefit to not forcing them all into the same box. So good question. Hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah. All right. So we can wrap up there. I've got other good emails that we can save for next time. And that'll do it for us for today and for this week. And 
We wish everyone a happy long weekend if they get to celebrate one. Yeah, have a good long weekend. All right, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you do that now before the end of May, you can still support us in June. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Dylan Heinzen, Andrew McDonald, Gabe Shapiro, Bern Sanko, and Ruddy. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Once again, we wish you a swell weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. I get spent.